Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence. We've got an exciting programme for you this week. We start with some new data on colorectal cancer screening using colonoscopy. We then turn, very excitingly, to a listener request. We've been itching for someone to send in their evidence request. And finally, uh, we have one, um, so you can hear more about that. And in fact, it turned into a bit of a feature then. Um, this, this episode feels very dedicated to diabetes and, uh, and pre-diabetes, and there's not a bit of COVID in sight. And we're going to finish off with a little bit of news about clinical academics behaving badly. I'm Helen McDonald, Research Integrity Editor for the BMJ and BMJ Journals, and I'm joined today by Joe. Hi, Joe. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. This is Joe Ross. I'm a professor of medicine and public health at Yale and also an associate editor at the BMJ. You sounded very timid there, Joe. And uh, I'm also joined by Juan. Juan, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Juan Franco. I'm a family physician. I am currently a researcher at the Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf, Germany, and I'm the editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. In short, they're very important people. Right, let's get on to our first item for today, which is colorectal cancer screening. And Juan, you volunteered to take a close look at this one. This is a new study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a few days ago. Wait a second, Helen. Isn't this the BMJ Talk Evidence Podcast? Why are we talking about a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine? Well, I'm going to see if we can bring it back to the BMJ at the end. But we're, we're open to all evidence here. Uh, it's evidence that motivates us, not journals. So, Juan, tell us about this paper. Well, I think it's um, it was very popular in the news uh, this past um, days because there um, it's one of the first tri- uh, uh, randomized control trials that put colonoscopy in the um, in the uh, in, under scrutiny, and um, it was a, as a large trial between 2009 and 2014 in Poland, Norway, Sweden, and Netherlands with um, follow-up data from more than 80, 84,000 participants. And, um, and pay, pay, participants were randomized to be invited to undergo a single screening colonoscopy or no invitation to screening. So, um, the, and that will be an important point later, won't it, Juan? Because they were invited to come. You didn't hear Juan's gentle, um, gentle voice, but I will stress that. So it's not necessarily that they actually came; they were invited to come. Carry on. No one had described my voice as gentle before, but thank you. <laughs> I yes, uh, and uh, the, the invitation part is um, is crucial, not only because. I couldn't imagine a trial of people being coerced to having colonoscopy, but also by the fact that only 42% of those uh, invited uh, underwent screening. So uh, very little, uh, well, like, um, I, don't, I wouldn't want to put it a subjective uh, uh, tone to it, but let's say it's not an optimal uptake for something that you're randomizing people into. And... Uh, uh, during a median follow-up of 10 years, um, basically in the main analysis, um, the, the risk of colorectal cancer at, uh, was 0.98% in the invited group and 0.12% in the usual care group. So there's a, some uh, absolute risk reduction and the confidence interval 
is between 0 0.7 and 0 0.93. And, uh, but the risk of death from colorectal cancer uh, was uh, 0.28 in the invited group and 0.31 in the usual care group. And the confidence interval for the risk ratio is from 0 0.64 to 1.16. And uh, uh, so this is uh, the main analysis. And the interpretation is basically that, um, and it's as consistent with these types of screening that yeah, identify, identify precursors of the disease, uh, which is also common in cervical cancer. So you remove the polyps and you therefore you estimate that the risk of the disease will be lower and this is what we see in one of the outcomes but unfortunately we can't really identify a, a change in colorectal cancer mortality um, most of this could be explained by the low uptake which would reduce the power to of the study to to detect uh, um, this difference and as a matter of fact the the authors go into uh, an adjusted per protocol analysis, trying to see those people who would have undergone screening. And in that case, they identify um, a difference in colorectal cancer mortality uh, with 0 0.15 in the invited group and 0 0.3 in the usual care group, which is an, with, of an estimate of half of the death from colorectal cancer. So you're trying to tease out the, does the screening program work and what the effects are versus if you actually turn up for this screening, um, does it does it work then? Uh, Joe, I can see you're itching to say something. Yeah, I mean, Juan, it was great that you brought this to our podcast discussion this week because it really was a heated discussion throughout Twitter and other social media forums. It was a bit of a you know, a Rorschach test of sorts, so how did right? So how's it gone down, Jay? Well, it, I, that's what I mean. Like, it was a bit of a Rorschach in the sense that, like, people saw in it what they wanted to see in it. There were the people who, you know, saw the, you know, the low participation rate and, uh, ah, that means that screening programs, you know, aren't likely to work. You know, we knew that, you know, we were probably, you know, there's too much overdiagnosis, too much testing and treatment. That, you know, this is just one more kind of nail in the coffin for screening programs. Others, people were like, hey, now, hey, now, like, it's more complicated than that. And, you know, when you do do the intention to treat or sorry, the per protocol analysis focused on the people who actually underwent screening, right? It actually, it's, it's effective at the individual level. And to me, this raises what I think is an interesting question. So my understanding is that in Europe, for the most part, people don't do colonoscopy unless they have some symptoms of disease. But in the United States, the sort of grant, like the ground level for colorectal cancer screening is colonoscopy. And I wonder if the participation rates would have been much higher in a population of people who are accustomed or like prepared at age 50 or now at age 45, I'm supposed to undergo a colonoscopy. And if we had seen participation rates in the 80% as opposed to in the 40%, might the results of the trial look different? Well, that's very interesting. And I did say that I was going to bring it back to the BMJ, didn't I? Because uh, a while ago, a couple of years ago, we um, published um, a paper in our rapid recommendation series that looked at um, screening options for colorectal cancer. And Joe, you went back to look at that paper um, to, to, see how, um, to, to see how this uh, latest study might impact on those recommendations. Yeah, well, so first I would just say for listeners, you know, we'll put a, a link in the show notes to the rapid recommendations 
uh, uh, page in the BMJ. And I would encourage people to go and look at it because the team at the, you know, at the journal do a really terrific job of creating infographics that people can engage with in order to look through and sort of identify, you know, what pathway to go down. And they, given the time and effort they put into it, more people should use it. But what <laughs> essentially what you see, right, is, um, you know, that, you know, that when the 15 year risk of colorectal cancer for an individual is below 3%, there's, you know, lo- weak evidence that favors no screening. But when you um, when you're, that 15 year risk is above 3%, there's weak evidence that favors screening. And of course, that 3% risk is uh, estimated using the Q cancer calculator that's also right on the website for, for people to look at. Now, you know, how is this trial going to change it? Well, it will probably move it even further away in the sense that it f- will disfavor colonoscopy and screening e- even a little bit more. But, there, you know, uh, there are more trials coming. Uh, and I hope that, you know, in the next few years, we'll have a much better sense of the role of colonoscopy in colorectal cancer screening. I don't know, Helen, if you want to talk about that. Well, what I can say is that the, uh, that sounds like a politician, doesn't it? What I can say is that um, the team that produced the rapid recommendations um, are going to have a look at that uh, at that study in more detail and add um, an update um to describe uh, the the latest evidence and to give some preliminary indication of how things might change. But I think they might hold on a bit longer for those other studies that you mentioned, Joe, to do a fuller update um, of that guidance in light of that um, new evidence there. Now let's turn to diabetes or pre-diabetes, I should say, and our very exciting listener request. Uh, So here in the UK, the NHS spends about £10 billion a year on diabetes, apparently. I like this reading around. And that's about 10% of the entire budget. Um, And our query relates to pre-diabetes. And here it is. It's from um, a UK GP who happens to work in Bath, which is actually where I'm based. So here we are. Hi, my name is Nicole Howes and I'm a GP in Bath. I would like more information on the evidence for the National Diabetes Prevention Programme to discuss with my patients living with obesity. We've had a local education study day where the team presented their programme but with no clinical outcome data. Can the Talk Evidence team tell me what is the evidence these programmes prevent, reduce or delay the onset of diabetes? Many thanks. So that was Nicole's message. Um, For those people who are not listening um, in the UK or in England, um, this is a a programme that's offered through the NHS. Um, It's a mixture of uh, some uh, coaching information. It's delivered digitally. It's centred around um, education and educational intervention to try and prevent or delay people from developing type 2 diabetes. And it focuses on healthy eating, lifestyle, help to lose weight and physical exercise programs. And the program Bump says that these have been proven to reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And so what I've done when I gave Joe and Juan their homework on this is thought of um, kind of two questions. One is, 
what is the evidence that programs a bit like this work? So sort of lifestyle interventions to prevent people from going from having uh, pre-diabetes to diabetes. And then we'll come back to this specific one um, that's run in England. So Juan, with your connections to Cochrane and systematic reviews, I thought you would be the perfect person to tell us first whether programs a bit like this work. Well, yes, um, there's a Cochrane review from 2017 um, about uh, diet, physical activities, or a combination of both in, in, in different programs to prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Um, they included um, different studies, um, and especially it's, it's, it's important to highlight at different time points with diff different definitions of diabetes. Uh, but the main gross evidence from 11 trials um, highlight that uh, these, these programs may reduce slightly some of uh, the risk of diabetes. As To put it in numbers, there's moderate certainty of evidence of, of every uh, thou for a thousand people some, uh, that do not go out this program uh, with a 257 will get diabetes and with the program uh, 146. So a sl um, um, a reduction that, of course, has a, a pretty tight confidence interval. Um, and what kind of time period is that over, Juan? Is that sort of... Um, the, the median the mean duration follow-up is 3.8 years. Okay, so we're looking more at the sort of delaying rather than but, lifetime prevention of... Yeah, it's difficult so. because most of the studies do not have um, very long follow-up time. And, um, and most of all, the, most, most of these studies did not uh, provide enough data for other type of important outcomes, for example, complications related to diabetes or health quality of life or, um, or possibly adverse events, which one would expect that they would be minor. But for example, even if you take cardiovascular mortality, that seven, seven studies did report on cardiovascular mortality, um, the, the evidence was um, too uncertain to... The, to, to figure out whether there's a difference or not between uh, those receiving uh, participating in the program or not. So um, basically, um, one of the questions perhaps I see, what I see I have as a clinician thinking about this is how much of these programs are trying to prevent like the chemical diagnosis of diabetes or how much are we preventing the actual morbidity that is related to, to diabetes and the burden of, of the disease. So, um, yeah, um, I, I would, I, I think that there is some evidence that is positive, but, but I, yeah, I, I mean, more. well, it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I think much of the, these programs, while, you know, that Cochrane review su summarizes a wide breadth of evidence, but the seminal study that was actually published a long time ago in the New England Journal, I think 2002, 2003, something like that. You know, that was the first three-year follow-up, you know, in the diabetes prevention program, identifying folks at high risk, those with pre-diabetes, you know, as um, assessed by um, elevated fasting, and post-load, plasma glu glucose concentrations. They were randomized to placebo, metformin, or lifestyle interventions. And the people who were randomized to lifestyle interventions 
did better even than those who started taking metformin in terms of the incidence of diabetes and with weight loss. The Lancet published their 10-year outcome rates and the, 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 the lower incidence of diabetes persisted. Uh, but again, uh, they don't look at cardiovascular outcomes like Juan notes. But it, it was those studies that actually led in the United States a big program evaluation led by Medicare, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So Medicare did this big pilot demonstration project to essentially say, well, everyone you know, should have access to lifestyle interventions as part of you know, diabetes prevention among those, quote unquote, with pre-diabetes, right? And, and that's actually been a large rollout that I think is now mirrored in terms of what's happening in the UK. Um, and the evaluation of that effort is going to be like what happened with the colonoscopy trial we just discussed. So they're going to offer lifestyle interventions and or metformin. I'm not sure if that's even part of the program. And then it'll depend on participation rates to know if it actually works at the population level as opposed to in a randomized trial. And I did find a couple of papers which we'll put in the notes of the episode, which were largely service evaluations and people's experiences of having been in the program. So I think the answer to the precise answer to Nicole's question is I don't think we entirely know um, the outcomes for this program or necessarily the answers about for how long it might delay um, diabetes or ultimately whether it fully prevents it. But I think Joe and Juan, I feel I feel persuaded that there is at least some evidence of these programs having um, an effect. Um, and it certainly feels like they're unlikely to do harm when targeted at people who um, have pre-diabetes. Yeah. And, and also in general, right? They're focused on lifestyle modifications, yes. which are generally Eating good, well, not just for diabetes, but for <laughs> lots of lots of reasons. So, uh, yes, I think we can all feel pretty good about that. Well, we can look forward to Nicole's feedback, maybe, <laughs> on whether we have helped her remotely have a conversation with her patients. Yeah, perhaps I would add is how this affects the whole system in the sense um, when you shift the resources and time and, and efforts into prevention, I would have to be, be absolutely sure that the people with the condition, in this case with diabetes, are receiving the most optimal care. Because if, and uh, so thinking about the whole system, uh, if you if you as a policymaker have to allocate money, where would you put it in this case? So there's some um, a bit, bit of an equity situation, I think. So it depends on the system. Since I'm not in the NHS, I cannot say that. Um, so, but I, I would argue that in other systems in which people with diabetes are struggling to get uh, their medication or the pa- or have a strong um, pathway of care, um, allocating resources into the, the prevention of, of the condition may seem slightly unfair. You are really confusing everyone's CPD now, Juan. <laughs> <laughs> So coming up in December, we've got BMJ Research Forum at BMA House. And joining me is Dr. Helen Serrana from the events team. Hi, Helen. Hi, Helen. (laughs) Helen's meat. Um, So tell us um, a bit about this event. Who's speaking? So um, the event is to bring together the research community. Um, We recognise that there's loads of people involved in research, not just uh, 
the people who submit to us and the people who edit the journals here at BMJ. But there's funders, there's policymakers, patient experts. But of course, the researchers are the main part of that. And we're just having this event alongside the BMJ editors meeting to make sure all those people are talking with each other about the same things rather than um, just to their own groups. Some of the speakers we've got are from some of the big funding organisations. We've got Ken Gabriel from Welcome Leap, who is uh, talking about how they fund for impact by using um, big amounts of venture capital money alongside investment from organisations like Welcome. Uh, we've got Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, talking about how research happens in, in the UK and how the government's involved in it. Um, and we've got a really um, interesting panel from researchers and funders and patients talking about Parkinson's disease research and how that is becoming uh, a real spectrum and a virtuous circle of patients getting involved with research questions and funders looking at impact as well as basic science research and further um, clinical research as well. So there's loads, there's something for everyone involved in research and um, and there's some detailed workshops and sessions uh, along different lines for different groups as well. Well, I will certainly be there and you've got a special offer, I understand, we, Helen, for our loyal listeners of um, Talk Evidence. We have. Well, we know that the Talk Ed- Evidence community are very interested in re- how research gets done. So we really hope that some of you will be able to join us. And we've got a 20% discount code, um, which you can use when you register at the website. The website is bmjresearchforum.bmj.com. That's all one word. And the discount code is BMJRF22. So that's BMJ Research Forum is the thing you need to remember. And from that, you'll be able to remember the website and the discount code. So we really hope to see loads of your listeners there. Well, thanks for dropping in and telling us all about it, Helen. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. We are going to stay with diabetes for our next item. And Joe, we discovered that you are a co-author of a paper that has recently been published. And with your big data obsession, you have tried to emulate a trial looking at the effectiveness of adding um, different second line drugs uh, to metformin, which is often used first line for type 2 diabetes because that's not enough for for many people um tell us about your paper and what you did yeah uh, so and thanks for giving me the chance to talk a little bit about it so among the many hats i wear um one is i lead a research group uh at yale uh that jointly works with folks at the mayo clinic to collaborate with the fda on regulatory science research projects that are a priority for the agency and as you both are aware, there's a uh, deep interest in leveraging real-world data sources to try to better understand product, medical product safety and effectiveness, uh, particularly you know, once products are approved for use. And so how can we 
you know, with the better data that are available to us today, uh, you know, advance our thinking and, and generate better evidence. So this was actually uh, part of a project that we uh, collaborated with with folks in the Office of Medical Policy to try to understand, you know, essentially, lots of people have looked back and said, all right, these clinical trials have been done. Could we have gotten the same results if we had used observational data, right? And, and confirmed, essentially, you know, that when you apply the same inclusion and exclusion criteria, you can, you get basically the same findings for the most part, right? This the, And that's been shown over and over. John Ioannidis did a great systematic review of all of the studies that have done that. And they, 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 they pretty much match up. But there's always this interesting risk of bias when you're looking backwards as opposed to forwards. And so working with the FDA, we actually identified two ongoing clinical trials that were kind of relevant to the agency where we asked, well, could we emulate that trial with observational data sources? And we wondered whether our results would look similar. And so we did one trial uh, looking at cardiovascular safety outcomes for a prostate cancer treatment. And then we did this trial, which emulated what was considered to be kind of the landmark grade study. This was a study that was launched way back in 2013 that asked the question, okay, you have a patient with diabetes, they're already prescribed metformin, what do you give them as a second line agent? And they tested four different uh, medications uh, representing four different classes. I think tell us the classes, Joe, because I feel like the drugs vary in the different places, but tell us the classes. Yeah, so um, the, a short-acting insulin, or sorry, a, 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 a um, they tested a uh, insulin, insulin glargine, a synthetic insulin. They tested a sulfonylurea, in this case, glimepiride. They tested a uh, GLP-1 receptor, liraglutide, and they tested a DPP-4, citagliptin. Now, you guys see patients all the time. What's missing from that? Oh, (laughs) well, Juan, I'm sure you you quickly realize they're missing the the T's, the new this SGLT2 inhibitors, which Mm. are like the actual diabetes medication that now is often, most often used for second line treatment because it's there's been good evidence that demonstrates not only does it work well for glucose lowering uh, for patients with diabetes, but it prevents cardiovascular risk, heart failure risk, and other renal outcomes, and so. You know, this is the madness of clinical trial design, right? Way back, you know, over 10 years ago, they thought they identified the four best sort of second line agents. And it turns out they were wrong, <laughs> right? And they missed one. So but what we did is we, we those results uh, were actually published just very recently. But before those results were published, we our, our, our study was published, uh, which looked at Testing these these four these four different uh, medication classes using uh, you know essentially health insurance claims data that were linked to electronic health record data, so we could use the lab values to identify um, the sort of main outcome, which is uh, the time to a hemoglobin A1C greater than seven seven uh, percent. Hold on, you want to be it, going down, right? So you want. Um, the, that you essentially you start with uh, patients. It's very complicated the way they designed it, but they essentially said it. They looked for failures of treatment. Okay. 
Yeah. It, it, so we've tried to emulate exactly the so way So you didn't want to make this easy mistake. for anyone to understand. You wanted to <laughs> tell us the drug that was most least likely to cause you to fail. Is that, is that right? Cause it, right. Because um, you want it because essentially what they tested is which drug or drug class was most effective at maintaining a controlled hemoglobin okay. A1C level. Okay. It's making a bit if more sense makes, now. Yeah, yeah, but it's all everything is, is complicated, and, and all you know everything that we did was also complicated. I'll try to just keep it simple by focusing it on two points. The first of which was um, we could not actually test the insulin glargine arm because when you're doing this using observational data sources, your data reflect real world practice, and as it turns out, no one was prescribing insulin glargine as a second line agent. Everyone basically got some other, uh, you know oral therapy, um, you know, one of these other therapies. So we just didn't even have enough patients, even with a massive data set, uh, to, to emulate that arm of the trial. The second thing is, you know, in the real world, people don't have their A1C measured every three months like they do in a trial. So that was super complicated to operationalize in terms of like, well, how many A1C measures did you have to have in order for us to look at you? And is that biasing the sample and, and all sorts of stuff like that. But essentially, um, we what we found was that liraglutide uh, was more effective at maintaining glycemic control than both uh, glimepiride or citagliptin. And now we're actually in the process of comparing our results to the actual trial results, which just came out. Um, and we're actually going to extend our emulation to include the SGLT2 inhibitors, because if we feel like you know what we did matched the actual grade study, then we can feel pretty confident in what we find with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And we hope that this evidence is going to be useful. But it, it, at the end of the day, this is these types of exercises, I think, are kind of what's going to help FDA and other regulators uh, in terms of like how to use these types of data, these types of evidence to complement, you know, what we get from the clinical trials. Do you think you can ever use them if you don't have clinical trials? Because it feels a bit like almost you need quite a good idea of what you're going to do in the trial to design this. It is very complicated because how, for instance, do you emulate a placebo arm, right? People who have the disease but don't get treated. Like there's, there is bias happening there among those, you know, in terms of using that as a population, as your control arm. That's very hard to do. If you're comparing two active treatments, it's a little bit easier because you can do kind of a new incident user study with big data sets, right? But it's very difficult to just say, this, these, these types of data analyses are going to replace a clinical trial. It's very hard to emulate that opportunity to randomize a person and truly get a more unbiased, the, the most unbiased estimate of the treatment effect. So I am very reluctant to think that we'll get there. But if you have you know, data sets from nine different countries representing nine different populations and you examine it and pretty consistently find that drug A works better than drug B, I think we're pretty close to the truth. We may not have ex the exact estimate of the effect that we'd get from a clinical trial. So you would see kind of the dream that you have the trials and then these big data things, they can confirm things. They can maybe look at some 
subgroups, like subgroups, yeah, some populations who are not represented. Diver in trials. Yeah, diverse populations exactly. or older people. Older adults, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I see how you're yeah. working here. And, and of course, safety, right? Because clinical trials are generally too small to get real signals of safety if they exist. So, so have, all of have these the things. FDA decided um, what they favor? Oh, as if they would say it bold and outright and be very clear in their intentions. That's not how federal agencies work. And what does, uh, what pr Professor Ross, what are you pres prescribing in uh, your clinic now then? Oh, I generally, uh, well, you know, I, I think that the SGLT2 inhibitors, not because of the work that we're done, but because of the, the basis of the clinical trial evidence, tends to have the most rigorous evidence behind it in terms of the, the benefit to patients. So I, I think... Those are the ones that I would prescribe as second line. I don't know one if you agree, but to me, that there's the, there's more trial evidence that supports their use. Juan is bringing you in here. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, the the SGL2 um, inhibitors um, were uh, they they came later in my practice in, in the last a few years, and for for the context where I was working. It was very difficult to to have them as second line, and when the national guidelines in Argentina uh, were being updated uh, one one and a half years ago, they basically there was a big push by the societies to put it as second line, but it was it was not feasible basically because of the cost. So, uh, but yes, they they do come as a revolution. Like well, a lot of people compare it to, to statin, right? And further effects that go beyond um, the, the change in glucose and, and, and the possible effects of, of cardiovascular mortality and and, the, and they're very promising. Perhaps what, one question I had was, so you said that you expect now to extrapolate, to follow the same analysis and include um, um, uh, the SGLT2 uh, inhibitors. Would that make um, so, but that would that would be the extrapolation, right? Not without the comparing it to trial data. Right. We would essentially repeat the emulation, mm -hmm. including an arm for people who took an SGLT2 inhibitor. And I just I don't want to be remiss. The you know this work which I'm a part of is but being led by uh, Rosalina McCoy at, at the Mayo Clinic, an incredible endocrinologist and clinical researcher along with Yi Hong Deng. So there, and there's a big team of other people. So I'm just one. Sorry, we won't give you too much credit, Joe. We're going to move on <laughs> from you now anyway. <laughs> but well done to all those people. <laughs> so to our final item, clinical academics behaving badly, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to do something which I rarely do, which is I'm going to be silent um and see see what joe and juan want to say because um that this is something that i've been looking into so i think i think you guys have got to ask me some questions so um i started following this this debate on online because i saw this uh editorial of the british journal of sports medicine about the retraction of many of the editorials and was a little bit confused at first because I started seeing all this pop-up of retraction, 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 <laughs> massive, massively in the journal, and in a BMJ journal, no less. In What's a BMJ journal, <laughs> 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 and, and of course, I, I, I was immediately intrigued. Uh, 
Callan, can you can you tell us a little bit? The, the, well, I'm not sure how much is the backstory in that, but it's all uh, the, the I'll keep it brief. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, tell us what you've been doing for the past two years. <laughs> it's not as long as two years. Um, so a few months back, we did retract a piece. It was a commentary piece written by a clinical academic called Dr. Paul McCrory. He is a sports medicine doctor out in Australia. And he was also the editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, BGSM, which is published by the journals. And we retracted that first piece because he plagiarised some content from the early 2000s. And soon after we retracted that piece, we were alerted to some other potentially problematic pieces, um, which might contain plagiarism. There was an uh, instance of misrepresentation of someone else's quotation in McCrory's work, and um, some examples of potentially duplicate publications, self-plagiarism. And so for the last few months, one strand of my job has been working with the current editor-in-chief of BJSM, and he and my colleague in research integrity at BMJ have been looking into the allegation. Uh, we've now provided an update on our investigation and our next steps. So the news is, is so the news is we've retracted nine more papers on which McCrory was a sole or single author. So he was just writing these pieces alone. They were all commentary style pieces, uh, so not academic research uh, pieces. Five um, contained plagiarism, so similar to the first example. Three were duplicate or redundant publications where he'd been inappropriately reusing chunks of his own work without um, reasonable um, attribution. And in one case, there was this instance where he misquoted the view of another clinician from 1950. And this was a US doctor called Thorndike. He was seeing patients who had sports injuries at a university. And um, Thorndike was recording and making recommendations based on his experience and observation. This is quite an old paper, um, but it included some cases of concussion. And Thorndike made a rec recommendation that after a certain number of severity of concussions, somebody basically shouldn't play contact sports again. That was the insinuation of the, of the piece. But the way that McCrory had quoted it was inaccurate. Um, but it also altered the meaning because McCrory quoted Thorndike as saying that people in these circumstances shouldn't play sports until the next season. And that, and that wasn't quite right. So that, um, that dealt with the allegations, but we also needed to take stock of where we are to communicate our findings um, to others and our concerns because our trust is broken in, in this editor-in-chief. And we needed to think about how we handle the rest of Macquarie's work published in our journals and invite others to, to play their part in that. And so on that basis, we decided to place an expression of concern upon any content which is written by McCrory, where he is a single or sole author. So basically his commentary style pieces. But he's also published a lot of other content, particularly in BJSM, um, where he's published research papers and also this consensus statement for concussion in sport, um, which is which is very key to that community of um, doctors and, and management of that particular condition. And we're going to ask his institution to look into the standing of his research. Um, 
and for the makers of the consensus statement to look into whether they consider that there's anything to be concerned about in that regard. We we screened through just for plagiarism in the uh, in the latest 2016 um, version and didn't find anything there. But I still think there's a considerable way to go on this journey. And so assuming the best, for example, and it's just editorial Because you're a kind-hearted person. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And and that no no harm to patients or will come out of it. Um, and to what degree do you think it is something that we're just seeing one end of the spectrum and of something that might be happening more, more globally? Because I imagine there might be a lot of academics listening to this podcast who are quote, quoting and paraphrasing all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're not going to be really paranoid. <laughs> that that would well. be very, very paranoid because we have this, I, I, I thought, authenticate system and, and scholar one and our system that sort of catches like this uh, gross plagiarism. Uh, but um, it's so, I, I once had a paper that came and said 30% overlap and I started seeing all this color-coded system of the plagiarism system and um, and it was very confusing, like plain Jenga. And uh, and but beyond that, uh, I I couldn't quite. I, I I understood that the authors were trying to do the best of paraphrasing, but they were doing this very badly. And it is, well, and also Helen, I'm just curious before you answer that is like like how much of this was self plagiarism, where mm -hmm. the you know essentially the authors writing the same thing kind of over and over. As opposed to plagiarizing somebody else's writing, which I think is yeah, mostly even mostly more it was plagiarism of other people's content, which I think we can we can all accept is uh, is worse <laughs> than uh, reusing yes. your own content. And I think you know that there are efforts going on to help researchers, you know, well-intentioned people with that paranoia of am I. Um, Am I, you know, do I need to paraphrase this a bit more so I'm not plagiarizing myself? And I think um, publishers are have to be pragmatic about these things. If you're, um, so, so the things that we might start to look at is, um, you know, if you're reporting work from a research study and the methods of that research study are the same as methods that are used in a different paper, there isn't a need to rephrase that for the sake of <laughs> trying to evade the uh, plagiarism detection software. You just need to reference the methods and say they're the same and it's absolutely okay to reproduce those. That's that's fine. That's transparent and honest and useful, I think. Um, that's what sorry. That's what it called text recycling. Text right? recycling, yeah. So that so it, <laughs> I suppose it's sort of like a euphemism, but it is. But it is. I think. I think it's important to conceptualize it as a totally different thing, um, and it's also okay to write about the same research in different ways. You know, you could publish your research paper. Joe was talking about his research today. He might then want to write an opinion piece, or he might want to write an editorial for a diabetes journal and to talk about that study. And he might repeat some of the results. And again, there's no need to be constantly paraphrasing all of that information. You just need to make it clear and be clear that you're not um, publishing redundant material. So if Joe were to take his research paper and to then try and publish it somewhere else, that would clearly be um, 
inappropriate. That would be a and, and just for the record, I would, a, do that. I would never do that. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want him coming after me for defamation. <laughs> no, but there is this practice, and we see it with trials. I was just looking at this uh, when 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 Ross was summarizing the diabetes prevention trial. Um, there were like over 40 publications in like a very short period of those trials. And this is, um, of course, many of them might be super relevant, but there's a very uh, gray concept that is the salami slicing where you have a study and you make a lot of papers out of it. Yes. And uh, which is sort of to the point of redundancy, right? And uh, some of these decisions aren't easy. And, and I think this relates to, I mean, the uh, sort of the answer to your question, although I've kind of forgotten where you're first question started one which is that in general this work is um is quite complex you have to to weigh up um a, a lot of information there's a lot of judgment involved T sometimes it's very obvious things have been cut and pasted but as you say looking at different publications and thinking okay what are the new outcomes here or what new audience are you trying to reach you have to you have to weigh those things up and come to a decision just like you would with any um, with any sort of primary content. We need so to wrap would up. you say just to wrap up? Would you say that uh, copy and paste is someone else's comment or publishing your article several times is a no no? But perhaps text recycling for the methods that is they're always the same. Perhaps I think we should do a, a future episode on plagiarism and fraud. <laughs> No, fraud you know is what? like another category. I feel like this episode has had a lot of very practical information for sort of um, continuing professional development, CPD, as we call it over here in the UK. And I think, Juan, that is something that you have to go and reflect upon now and, <laughs> and to have a good old think about. How many CME, CME credits do the listeners get? Well, it depends on how long we talk for. <laughs> I'm not sure it should depend on that. It should depend on the quality of the conversation. But Joe tells us there's somewhere else he has to be now. So we, we, we've got to wrap it up for this week um, and bring the show to a close. So I would like to thank you both, Juan and Joe, for joining us. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, you can um, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. You can rate us, especially if you'd like to rate us very highly. And we really enjoyed um, looking into Nicole's query this month. And if you have a query that you'd like us to look into or you'd like to give uh, the query to me so I can give Juan and Joe some homework to do, then, then that would be wonderful. Um, so until next month, it's goodbye from me. It's bye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there.